these words from Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Last week as we studied about the church doctrines that were developed by our most trusted of biblical scholars. We noted that much of their works were based around scriptures like these here in the book of Ephesians. And we found also that as each of those men, and especially John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius, as they formed their various theological conclusions that each concept that they put forth had been very carefully researched within these scriptures, both by them and by their followers, their advocates, and even now by those who would advocate either one of those doctrines that they have put forth. And each of those doctrines have very firm scriptural proofs to support their beliefs. And further, that as they develop those beliefs, those doctrines, that they built their conclusions in a manner that could be described as precept upon precept, which uh, with each point being proven by other scriptures throughout the other books of the Bible here. And then also building to the very next point, because you'll recall that the articles of remonstrance by Arminius, the articles of Arminianism, there are five of those, each one building on the, uh, on the other. And then Calvin also had five points, and each one building upon the, the previous one. So it's precept upon precept. And so both of them research their doctrines, and they have firm scriptural proofs, which gives us difficulty in asking ourselves, then what should we believe? As to the precepts upon precepts, we see especially, and I'll look in particular at the five points of Calvinism over the next few weeks, but those were constructed beginning with the very first of the five points, forming this simple conclusion that each and every one of us is totally depraved. Totally depraved. It's that condition of soul in which sin and our sin nature has complete and total control over every part of who we are. Our heart, our soul, our mind, and our body. And you can read all about that in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And it's so very clear. And again, no, being totally depraved is not the same as being absolutely depraved. We're not as bad or as evil as we could be, but we are still so much depraved that we're not able to turn ourselves to God for His redemption and His salvation, but neither can we even know that we have need of a Savior. And it's not as if we begin our lives perfectly innocent. We might think so as we see a baby and we think, well, there, there is such innocence there, but we do not begin our lives perfectly innocent and then go downhill from there. 
These scriptures are clear. Our birth is embedded in sin with the smallest strands of our basic DNA being filled with sin. Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Those two words, iniquity and sin, one of them has to do with the actual commission of sin. But the word iniquity has to do with this nature that leads towards sin. That thing within us that says, Yes, I want to do that wrong thing. And so, David says in his repentance there in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now I confess to you, I do not understand all of those words well. But I do know that they are truth and by faith I do accept them. And then we read on further in these scriptures. We find that within our own strength and our own purposes, our progress towards goodness And righteousness never improves. Contrary to what the world would have us to believe, we don't start out at a level and work our way up to to a greater form of righteousness or, or find a deeper truth. It does not improve. Depravity seems to continue to beget more and more depravity within us. And we read like in Romans chapter 3. Listen to these words. Chapter 3 verse... But first, let me mention, all you have to do is look also at Romans chapter 1. And you'll see there in the latter part of Romans chapter 1, you'll see the steps of reprobation. As we get ourselves involved in one level of sin, we just immediately move to the next and to the next. And then here in Romans chapter 3, God explains it and He says, As it is written, there is none who is righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. You would think he would finish there. But then he continues. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, poisonous snakes, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are born in sin. And without some change taking place, we go further and further, deeper and deeper into it. And we follow along with that all the days of our life. And as those last words, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They're very clear. We have no conscious understanding that we need a Savior. And that's why so often as you would witness to an unsaved person, they'll, I've had them just ask me, why, why do I need a Savior? I'm doing okay the way I am. And they just don't know. And the words of Jesus from the cross are just rings in your ear. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And it's not that they're innocent. It is just that their depravity is of such a condition within us that we can't see and know good. And our intellect is such a revered instrument within each of us and we praise it so much in our society. But it's not of much help. Our intellect is not of much help to us. Men and women of excellent intellectual standing have sought continuously to find answers and pathways 
within their intellect, their, their logic, their common sense, only to fail in their efforts. You know why? Because intellect and common sense are simply a part of that broader path that Jesus spoke about, the one that leads to destruction. In Proverbs 16.25 we read, There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It seems so right that we should say this or do that, go this way or go that way. But the Lord tells us here that there is a way that seemeth right unto us, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So the question then comes to us, knowing all about this and our depravity, how do we get from where we are in our depravity into eternal salvation, that salvation that we so desperately need? How do we go from being lost to being found? We sing it so often, by the way. The answer is clear in Scripture. His answer is grace. That's how we get from being lost to being found. Out of that, our depraved condition into righteousness. It's through grace. Grace and grace alone. That unmerited gift of eternal life that's given directly from the hand of God. Listen to these words, verses 6 and 7 that we just read. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved the Lord Jesus. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Now both our Calvinist friends and our Arminian friends will fully agree on this, that this is the only means by which we can gain salvation and eternal life. It can only come through the marvelous grace of God that we sing about. Now, our Arminian brethren speak about grace using the word prevenient grace. In Wesley's order of salvation, John Wesley, the great Methodist theologian, defined prevenient grace in this way. He said, and listen carefully to these words. These are good words. Human beings are totally incapable of responding to God without God first empowering them to have faith. This empowerment is known as prevenient grace. Prevenient grace does not save us, but rather it comes before anything that we can do, drawing us to God, making us want to come to God, enabling us to have faith in God. Prevenient grace is universal in as much as all humans receive it, regardless of their having heard of Jesus. It is manifested in the deep-seated desire of most humans to know God. Now most all of us, and I in particular, will agree with most everything that I've just read there that Wesley wrote. Our first response to God, our receiving of His grace of eternal life can only come through His first having enabled us, enabled me to turn and to want to receive His hand, to receive His grace. But by the way, this is also, right within these words, is also where our Calvinist friends expressly differ. Does God at this point in time leave us to choices? He has made His grace universally known. 
In other words, everyone, and this is one of the differences between the two doctrines, Wesley would say that everybody wants to know God. But he had just got through saying it only takes the Holy Spirit. It can only be through the Holy Spirit that someone could want God. But so then, God has given His grace universally to us. Is this the point in which we, by our own free will, will say, do I want to make this choice? Today's language says we have an informed choice. We've been told. Scriptures are clear. It's been preached. Can we make a choice now at this point to either receive or reject Him? That's where point two comes in of the five points of Calvinism. It's called unconditional election. So the Calvinist folks would argue that it is at this point that Ephesians 1 is simply what it says. And it's not just at one moment in time, but before the foundations of the earth, verse 4, just as He chose us, just as He chose us, in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having then predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Now, by the way, using those verses alone, they're very plain and simple to understand. Verse 4 tells us that He, God, chose us, and further that He did not wait till some moment in time, but He chose us before the foundations of the world. Verse 5 then goes on to say that His choice was made according to His good pleasure and His will. And the mention of free will being involved in that first choice that brings us to salvation and eternal life, it's nowhere to be found in those words. But because of this understanding of precepts upon precepts, what we need to do is say, okay, well, Ephesians 1 says this. Well, what do other Scripture verses say? It does not mean that Ephesians 1 is wrong because it is right, it is pure, it is infallible truth. But what does God say? Does He mean that for every circumstance and every person? And so you look at other precepts within the Scriptures. And so you then you do find free will being spoken about all through the Scriptures. It's intricately intertwined in most all of the choices that we make. And the Calvinists, on the one hand, would agree that yes, man's free will is intertwined into God's will. And most all of those choices. But the Calvinists would argue that in this particular circumstance, in those first choices for salvation, they would insist that this part, because of these words that I just read to you, they would insist that this part is within the decision-making of God and God alone. Our Arminian friends would then immediately argue fervently that God does not desire that any should perish. And therefore, a man, a woman, must have some say in their final outcome. And our Arminian friends would go further and explain these words here that are being spoken of here in Ephesians 1 to where God chose us, that yes, He did. He did choose us. But it was only because of His vast foreknowledge He was able to look on ahead and He would see what Bill Adams was going to do thousands of years later. And because of a decision that I would make to receive Him, then He chose then based upon my decision to elect me. That's the Arminian doctrine dealing with those words. Now, let me say again. 
The Calvinist doctrines and the, the Arminian doctrines are both very deeply sought after truths. They differ very widely. Both sides of this argument have theologians that are fervent in their love for Christ and their desire to know the truth. But throughout all these years, beginning in the 1600s, when both of these men lived, there's been no reconcilement between the two. And what's the result of that? The results of that is, uh, we are here today in this Presbyterian church, and right behind us is a Methodist church, and there's a Baptist church. And they're sprinkled all over the landscape, simply because we each decide what God is saying here. Devoutly believing Christians, loving the Lord, and they are going to be in heaven. But each one firmly entrenched within their own belief structures, disagreeing on exactly how they got to where they were. People saved in this church and that church and that church, saved, and yes, we're going to heaven, but we disagree on how we got to this salvation. It's a great mystery. One that brings back to mind something that I said in an earlier message, and that is, is it possible for opposing views such as these, though they are vastly different, to have within them some middle ground on which both might actually be true and accurate. Now I know that those on either side of the argument that would hear me say such words as that, they would say, oh no, no, these are too vastly different to have any reconcilement between them. But may I say that as for me, that God has answers that you and I, and even the greatest of theologians, have not yet considered. Recall just one Consideration. Recall the very first thing that God said to man. He said to Adam, Adam, do not eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of it. If you do, you will surely die. And he did eat of it. But he didn't die. Now we want to explain what God meant by that. And many people have formed their own ideas about what God meant when he said you will surely die. Oh, you'll die spiritually or some other. And maybe all that's true, but that's not what took place. They ate of that tree and they did not die. Why? For one reason. Because God said, I will now form another covenant with you. A covenant called grace. So that you might have life. And so now we have this mystery that's covered over by grace. And we'll not know exactly how those those opposing views might actually reconcile until we stand before Christ. But again, the best part of all this is that we are not arguing about whether or not someone is saved. Because in our Apostles' Creed, we agree that we believe that there are Christians in every one of these denominations. And that brings us back to the question that I had last week. Why do we suppose that these theologians, and even we now, disagree so fervently the, the motivation on why you would have such opposing views, and especially that you would have uh, Arminian views that came as a rebuttal to what Calvin was putting forth in, in the Reformed doctrines, is simply explained by the word feelings. Feelings, their feelings then, my feelings now. Because my heart tells me that a loving and gracious God could not leave my dearly beloved family members and friends to perish without hope. I know that even before, long before even the conception of our dear children, 
My wife and I prayed for their unborn souls, wanting, hoping, crying out, even now, and so much now, crying out with great tears for God to save and to sanctify our children. And now also with husbands and wives and children and grandchildren being added in, our prayers are even more fervent for them. And therein, right within what I'm saying, lies this great battle between these two doctrinal beliefs. On the one hand, if we believe, as some of the strict interpretations of the Calvinist doctrines believe, that we can only hope that our beloved children, our grandchildren, our other beloved ones that were chosen by God before the foundations of the world were laid. Or if we hold to the Arminian doctrine, there's always hope. Right up to the very last. As our children and grandchildren get tossed to and fro, vacillating between good and evil, right and wrong, we still hold out hope that we can stay on our knees and they will then make a right choice and choose life. Let me read these words quickly from Deuteronomy 30, where the Lord speaks of that. He says, See, I set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God as I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you will live and you will multiply and the Lord God will bless you. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, I declare to you today that you you surely shall perish. So I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Folks, he's talking about free will choices here. Choices that do rest within the hearts of men and women. And the life that God's speaking about here is not just this mortal life, it's that life eternal. So then what is each of us to believe? Are our prayers simply carrying forward that which God has already decided? Or will our prayers actually have an impact within the Trinity of God? As we bow daily before God, we do really want to believe that our prayers for our beloved children who are not yet saved, who are deeply into difficulties, that our prayers will be effectual for the saving of their souls. Otherwise, why should we pray? I confess to you that I personally am caught up daily in the simple act of hope. Hope. Hope that that which is not yet seen the salvation of the souls of my beloved ones can and will yet eventually come about. And so I stay on my knees before God, humbly beseeching Him for His grace and His mercy, saying, Father, please, please save my children. Let's pray.